0: Well, good morning. If you have your Bible, let me invite you to uh, take it and turn again with me to the book of 1 John. The book of 1 John this morning as we continue to march our way through this little short letter written by the Apostle John, we're going to be looking at chapter 2, uh, verse 18 through 27. That's 1 John, chapter 2, verse 18 through 27. And while you're turning there, let me just take this opportunity to say that While the circumstances that we have found ourselves in as a church here at the beginning of this new year are likely much different than many of us would have expected, what we can say for certainty as Christians is that the Lord expected these circumstances. And therefore, if He expected the circumstances that we have found ourselves in, despite how trying and unpredictable they might be, then we can ultimately trust as believers that He will indeed use these circumstances both for our good and for His glory. So I trust that this morning and in the days ahead, he will continue to give us the patience and the grace that we need uh, to endure as we wait upon his timing, which, as many of us know, is often much different from our own. Well, with that said, if you have found your way to 1 John chapter 2, let me invite you to stand with me. If you haven't yet found it, you can just pretend that you have and peek off the person next to you. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18 through 27. I'll read our text for us, and then we'll go to the Lord and ask for his help and blessing in our time studying it together. Starting in verse 18, the Apostle John writes, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard Teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. Well, pray with me as we begin. Well, Lord, you have told us before that in this world we will indeed have trouble, and we are painfully aware of that in these recent days and weeks. But you have also fortunately told us that we can take heart because your precious Son Jesus has indeed overcome this trying world. So as we look into your word this morning, Father, and as we take note of the many obstacles and forces that would try to deceive and mislead us on our way to heaven, we ask that you would equip us with the knowledge and the power that we need to stand firm to the end. It's in Christ's matchless name that we ask and pray these things. Amen. Y'all may be seated. If you're taking notes, the title that I've given to our message this morning is The Dangers to Our Destiny." dangers to our destiny. Many years ago, during the summer in between my sophomore and junior year of college, I made a rather frivolous decision, as college students often do, and decided that I was going to sign up to be a volunteer staff member at a Christian retreat center in Northern California for the three months of May through August that summer. And I intentionally stressed the use of the word volunteer staff member because I was just that and no more. I was a mere volunteer. Along with about a hundred others of these volunteer staff members, I was paid zero dollars, had to purchase my own round trip plane tickets, and in exchange for my three months of strenuous service was promised free meals, free lodging, which was hardly lodging, and seven t-shirts, one for each day of the week, uh, in exchange for those three months of my work that summer. Well, for whatever reason, at this particular juncture in my life as a naive college student with really no other promising prospects for how I'd possibly entertain myself that summer, I convinced myself that this was really quite the deal for somebody in my shoes, and so I decided to board the plane and begin this three-month-long adventure that summer. Well, one of the very first things that I can remember doing once arriving there that summer was going whitewater rafting in the Klamath River just outside of Mount Shasta, California. And I vividly remember this day because I could have sworn that that day in that raft was going to be the final day of my wonderful 19-year-long life as I had known it, up to that point. And as I look back and reflect on that roller coaster of an experience, there is uh, one scene in particular that stands out to me above all the rest, because in hindsight, it very well may have just been the single reason that I have survived to tell of it this morning, uh, there just before we plunged into this icy, cold river. I can remember having a veteran river guide stand up before us all and begin to tell us very seriously about the many dangers that we may experience and encounter while out on the water that day that we needed to be hyper aware of in case, as he put it, we got distracted and wound up drowning. Well, as you can imagine, that statement certainly grabbed my attention. And so there this river guide stood, amplifying his voice against the backdrop of this rushing river, and he proceeded to go on to tell us about the many dangers that we might encounter and needed to watch out for from our starting points until our ending points. And to this day, I can still remember a few of the things that he specifically warned us about. I can remember him telling us about how we needed to make sure that we always kept seated in the raft, because if we ever stood up even an inch or two from our seat, well, we were almost certain to fall out. And I can remember him telling us that there was a very precise way in which we ought to stroke our paddle so that it does not get stuck in a rock formation and if our paddle does happen to get stuck in a rock formation well we better not hold on to it or else we'll fly out of the raft with it and finally I can remember him telling us if we do fall out of the raft which I did there was a very specific way that we were to float on our back and paddle our arms backwards so we would not be dragged underneath the surface of the water and repeatedly pummeled by these sharp rocks And, well, despite how fast my heart was racing at that moment, as yours might have been as well, the end of the story, obviously, is that I survived the river, ended up having an absolute blast, and to my surprise, needed to recall just about every single one of those many dangers that that river guide had warned us of at the beginning of our day. And in many ways, as I look back on that special experience in my life, I realize now that had it not been for the many cautions that that river guide had given to us, I would have actually been in far greater danger than I really was. Well, friends, our text this morning is clearly not about the dangers of whitewater rafting, but it is about the many dangers that will confront us and attend to us in our pilgrimage and in our journey toward heaven. And in these 10 verses before us, the Apostle John, equipped with both the wisdom and the experience that often comes with old age, he he sort of takes on the role of a spiritual river guide. And as one who has weathered the many storms of this life himself, he now writes to instruct these younger believers about the many dangers that they may face and encounter as they persevere onward toward the finish line of their faith. And so as we make our way through our passage this morning, what we're going to do is really zoom in on these three particular dangers that John highlights in this text, so that you and I might not be caught off guard in our spiritual life as they inevitably arise before us. And so with that framework in mind, Let's begin by turning our attention to the first danger that John sets before us. And for those of you who are going to be watching the clock, I'll just go ahead and let you know ahead of time that this first danger is the one that we're going to be spending the vast majority of our time in. And that first danger is this, the danger of departure, the danger of departure. Take your Bible and look back with me at verse 18. And as you do, I want you to notice the term of endearment that John uses again as he addresses his audience here. Children, children he says. And this formal address really ought to clue us in on the fact that he is now shifting gears once again and beginning a whole new train of thought in this letter. There is a sense in which he's clicking next on the PowerPoint, and he's turning our attention to a whole new subject altogether that we must be constantly aware of and mindful of in our Christian discipleship. And so that's exactly what we see follow here in this first verse. Children, he says yet again, it is the last hour, and by last hour, he means the time between Jesus Christ's first and second coming. It is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Well, at this point, any preacher of this text really only has two options before him. Either he could just dismiss the elephants in the room altogether and rush right on past that trigger word that we've seen mentioned there twice in those first few verses. Or we could all slow down and admit that while our knowledge on the subject may always be partial and incomplete, there are nonetheless some helpful points that can certainly be made here regarding this person referred to in our text as the Antichrist and the many Antichrists which have already come. And so just to be honest with you all, As I prayed through this this past week and tried to determine what would be most helpful for us as a congregation, I concluded that I do really think it would be beneficial for us to just take a few moments and briefly scratch the surface of this subject before us to properly put the ball on the tee before we deal with the remainder of our passage this morning. And so with that said, let's talk about it. What's up with the Antichrist in our passage? Well... As we begin to answer that question, I think that we need to start by acknowledging a principle that ought to bind us whenever we take words like these and place them underneath the lens of our biblical microscope. And that principle is this. We must always allow the Bible to define its own terms. We must always allow the Bible to define its own terms. Whenever we look at any term in Scripture, we must fight the urge to define these terms as the world defines it and to rather define these words words as the Bible defines it. We need to force ourselves to throw off any man-made ideas that we've gathered along the way and to instead take these terms and to put them up against the test of the dictionary of Scripture itself for our understanding. Let me just give you uh, one example to try to illustrate this point. Take the word flesh, for example. Flesh. Used by the average person on the street, the word flesh really only means one thing. It refers to that most superficial layer of our skin. It's that part of our body that when we touch it, it turns a a reddish pink and we can feel it with our finger. That's what we tend to think of when we think of the word flesh. However, as we open the pages of Scripture, we find that the word flesh is primarily used to describe something much different than what we might use in our typical English vernacular. Flesh, in a biblical sense, most often refers not to our human skin, but rather to our sinful and corrupt nature. And this is a far cry from what we might expect if we asked a typical person out on the streets. And so I think that with this one simple example, we can begin to see how often we need to challenge our presuppositions when it comes to the meaning of certain words as they are used in the Bible. And with that in mind, I think that we find ourselves in a very similar position when we come here to deal with the word antichrist. In other words, what I'm trying to say is this there is a very strong chance that what you and I have heard mentioned about the Antichrist from certain news articles or hot-button websites is actually vastly different from what the Bible and the pages of Scripture has to say for itself. You know, it's been well said before that if you want to know the meaning of any book, the best person to consult on the subject would be its author. For example, if you were curious about something that was written in the Harry Potter series, the best person to ask about the meaning, if you had access to her, would be none other than J.K. Rowling herself. She would be the authoritative voice on your question, because she wrote it, she was the mind behind those words, she knows what she meant by it. And similarly, if we are curious about the meaning of something that we see in the Bible, in the pages of Scripture, well, there is no one better for us to consult on the issue than the Holy Spirit who inspired them. And fortunately for us this morning, as we consider this subject of the Antichrist in our passage What we find is that the Holy Spirit has actually clarified this very thing for us just four verses later. Look with me at verse 22 in this same chapter, and notice what the Apostle John has to say about the Antichrist that he has just mentioned in verse 18. He says, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. In other words, here it comes. You want a definition? Get, up, get out your pen. You can write it down. Who is the Antichrist? He says, it is he who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever this Antichrist is, John says, he is characterized as one who denies both in word and in deed the very Trinity of God. <laughs> now, for you Bible nerds out there, let me just mention that While it is true that the Apostle John is the only author in Scripture who uses the specific title Antichrist, there are many who believe that the Apostle Paul makes reference to this same exact figure in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3, when he writes, "...let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come," and by that day he means the day of Christ's return, "...for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed." the son of destruction. And several Bible scholars would argue that this man of lawlessness, this son of destruction, and the Antichrist are really one and the same person. Now, I want us to just step back for a moment and make a general observation based upon everything that we've just said so far. Regardless of the ambiguity surrounding the details, here is what we can say for certain about this Antichrist figure. Number one, he is coming. That is clear. (laughs) And number two, when he comes, his express purpose and single mission will be to oppose the kingdom of Jesus Christ and to encourage the widespread denial of his lordship. That much is clear to us. However, (laughs) here's what I want us to see in our text this morning. John's primary concern for you and I is not the Antichrist who will one day come, but is rather the many Antichrists which he says have already come. Look back in your Bibles. He says, And as you have heard the Antichrist is coming, so now. In other words, here's the urgent issue on the table before us. So now, many Antichrists have come. If you've ever tried having a conversation with me about movies, it sadly won't be more than about two minutes before you are disappointed to learn, that I will likely miss about 99% of the movie quotes and movie references that you try making to me. <laughs> For those who know me well, they know that I am astonishingly, perhaps even annoyingly incompetent when it comes to all things related to movies. And because of this, I I can't speak uh, very informed on many movies that you might talk to me about. However, there is one movie that I have seen and that I can recall somewhat well, and that movie is none other than the famous movie wonderfully titled Despicable Me. Despicable Me. Now, if you're over the age of 30, this sermon illustration will likely fall on flat ears for you. And if that's you, just take comfort. That's how I feel every time anyone ever talks to me about movies. (laughs) Essentially, the plot of Despicable Me is pretty simple. There is this evil, powerful supervillain known as Gru, who has thousands of these yellow, little, pickle-shaped minions who are ruled by him and who exist to carry out his will and his reign throughout the universe. And so there is a sense in which wherever these minions go, wherever the mass of their army extends, there's a sense in which the spirits, the evil spirits of Gru and his kingdom, goes forward with them. And, you know, I realize that that might be a somewhat flippant example to illustrate our point, but you can begin to see the parallels here between the minions and despicable me and what John is getting at here in our passage. These many antichrists which have already come are not, he says, the final figure who is to come, but they already exist, John says. And they are peppered all throughout the world, embodying the evil spirit of the one who will one day appear. Perhaps just one final parallel will help us to all wrap our minds around this. You can think of it this way. Just as Christ has yet to return a second time, though in the meantime, there are many Christians throughout the universe who represent him and are forerunners of his kingdom here on earth, so it is with the Antichrist. Though the capital A Antichrist has yet to appear, yet in the meantime, John says, there are many Antichrists who represent him and serve as forerunners of his evil mission to defame and to destroy the name of Jesus Christ here on earth. And friends, let me just offer a word of warning to us at this point. These many Antichrists who destroy the name of Jesus may sadly just as well be found in some pulpits throughout America as they could be found in the evil political spheres where we might most expect. To find them. And so John says, we must be alert. We must be on guard. However, as we pick up and move ahead in our text, here's the primary thing that I want us to see. It is with these many antichrists in mind that John writes what he does in verse 19. Look back with me at verse 19. He says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But what is he saying here? Well, I believe what he is saying is this. There are many who may continue onward with the visible church of God for a season, perhaps even a very long season, who will only later on prove themselves to be tares among the wheat. Bad fish caught swimming in the same net as the good fish. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For If they had been of us, they would have continued with us, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Well, let me try to just drive the nail nailed application home for us here at this point. But before I do, I want to acknowledge that I realize that the primary context of this passage is speaking about the departure of the many antichrists from the true church of God in the Apostle John's day and the harmful ripple effect that ensued because of it. I realize that. However, with that said, I do believe that there is sufficient biblical warrant for us to widen the scope of this verse and to offer a more general word of warning to us all here this morning. And I believe that that more general word of warning that the Apostle John would have for you and I to swallow this morning is this. While we cannot say that the mere outward association with God's people automatically guarantees that you are one of God's people, what we can say with a degree of certainty is that a refusal to associate with God's people is often a very strong indicator that you are not among God's people. It's been said before that going to church does not make you a Christian any more than standing in a garage makes you a car. (laughs) And while that is certainly true, I think it's important for us to often stress the opposite point here, which our passage teaches us, and that is this. Refusing to affiliate yourself with any church at all is a significant cause for concern and alarm about where you truly stand before God. And here, I think, is where we are confronted with the primary danger that John wants us to see in these first few verses, and that is the danger of departure. It is as though John is saying here, beware, believer, (coughs) of departing from God's people, of trying to live a life of spiritual health, detached from and apart from the very body that God has given you and I, to promote and to nourish that spiritual health. I'll remind you that more often than not, people turn their back on the church long before they turn their back on Christ. Sinking into spiritual isolation and refusing to associate with the local body of believers is sadly almost always the linchpin that is pulled before a person slides down the hill into spiritual apostasy. And yet, if I had to guess, This talk of people departing from the church is not merely abstract for many of you this morning. For many of us, when we think of this danger of departing, this is not just mere theological gymnastics for us. We think of it in terms of real people with real faces and real names, people whom we love, people who once were of us but now have departed and gone out from us. They have left the church and they've abandoned the faith. When I think of this text, my mind automatically races to two people in my life uh, whom I once was very close to and whose relationships I cherished deeply. One was a childhood friend and a college roommate, someone who I actually uh, ministered alongside of, who led worship with me in my first role in youth ministry several years ago, and the other was a spiritual mentor and father-like figure in my life who had a vibrant and robust discipleship ministry, and a global ministry even that has been existing for the last 10 years in Africa. Both of these men are men I admired greatly and whose faith I would have honestly told you I longed to emulate. However, in the course of about 18 months, a few years ago, both of them, in complete shock to me, they slipped quickly into a lifestyle of indulging in open sin and turned their back not only on the church, but on Christ himself. They Uh, abandoned the faith. And to this day, they neither walk with Christ or associate with his people. And if statistics are accurate, well, I would imagine that many of you could likely throw a name in this hat as well. You, You know the feeling of this heartbreak. You know the pain of watching a close friend or a beloved relative abandon and walk away from the open invitation of Christ Jesus. Well, friends, let me just offer a word of comfort to us this morning, simply to say, that we are not alone in this pain. For the Bible tells us that we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with us in our weaknesses. For our King Jesus knows this pain all too well. I'll remind you that Judas Iscariot was one of the 12, and if he was capable of betraying Christ, then we ought not to be surprised if others are capable of betraying us as well. (laughs) You see, our text this morning reminds us that one of the hallmark characteristics of the Christian is the distinguishing mark of endurance. Notice that in verse 19, John does not say, if they had been of us, they might have continued with us. He does not say, if they had been with us even, they should have continued with us. But rather, what does he say? If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. It is a guarantee, friend, that those who start with Christ, end with Christ. Mark 13:13. 13, 13. Mark it down. Jesus said, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And as the late pastor John Stott once put it, every true believer will endure to the end. Not because salvation is the reward of endurance, but rather because endurance is the hallmark of the saved. You see, and this is a great comfort to us, (laughs) my endurance and your endurance is not the result of our ability to hold on to Christ, but is rather the result of Christ's ability to hold on to us. He who began a good work in your life will surely bring it to completion. And if you and I did not start the work, well then, friend, we're not going to finish the work either. And though for a season we might be tempted to turn our back on Christ, I can assure you that Christ himself is never tempted to turn his back on you. What a wonderful comfort that is to us as believers. Well, there's the first danger John lays before us that we must be on constant guard against. That is the danger of departure. But I want us to move on now and consider the second danger that John draws our attention to. And again, we're just going to look at these final two marks somewhat briefly, but they're still necessary for us to take note of. The second danger that he puts before us in this passage is the danger of denial. The danger of denial. Look back with me now at verse 21. John says, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. Now, remember the context of this letter here. As we've said before, John is not writing this letter because he doubts the salvation of those who would be reading it. Rather, he's writing this letter actually because he's convinced of their salvation, and he wants to help provide categories for them to better understand the condition of those who are departing from and leaving the true church. And so here again, John brings into focus the two categories of people that he has seemed to have in his mind all the way up until this point throughout this letter. On the one hand, he says, there are those who know the truth, who have been brought up in the truth and who believe the truth, and then on the other hand, there are those who deny the truth and are continually influenced by the devil to promote his lies. And as though John could audibly perceive the question at the forefront of his readers' minds, he proceeds to tell us exactly who these liars are, and he does so by using a question-answer format in verse 22. Question, and who is the liar? Answer. It is he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Here in this verse, John, using as plain of language as possible, tells us that wherever you and I see a person, a cult, or a movement that denies the very deity of Jesus Christ our Savior, we can be sure that we are looking in the face of a liar. You are looking at someone who is far off from God. We are dealing with a person who sadly has absolutely no relationship with God whatsoever. And so we could well say, by inference, that this verse rules out for one thing from the kingdom of God all Orthodox Jews who merely claim that Jesus was a miracle-working rabbi but are not willing to go any further than that. We could also say that this verse rules out of the kingdom of God all Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus who claim that there are alternate ways to achieve eternal life other than through the sacrificial and atoning death of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And finally, we could even add and say that this verse rules out of the kingdom of God. All the tens of millions of secular people today who are quick to affirm that Jesus was a good ethical teacher, they'll give them that, but who ultimately rest their hope upon the fact that our final acceptance before God will be based not upon our faith in Jesus Christ, but rather upon our good works and our moral uprightness. (laughs) This is a far cry from what Jesus Christ himself in John 14, 6, because he did not say, I am a way, the truth and life. He said, I am the way, the truth and the life. And no one, not you or me or anyone else will come to the father except through him. Look, it is impossible for you and I to have a relationship with God, the father, without being in submission to God, the son. The Bible is emphatically clear at this point, that you and I cannot have one without the other. They are, as some would say, a packaged deal. You know, I can't remember much about my life from when I was in elementary school. But if there's one thing I do remember from that period of my life, it is that I was, as maybe some of you are here this morning, an extremely picky eater. And if I could just have a moment of confession with you this morning, I would have to admit that many of those food aversions that I developed early on in my childhood have actually only grown, grown stronger, not weaker, as the years have gone by. Perhaps one or two of you here this morning could relate with me in this, and I don't really know how else to say it, but uh, I hate pickles. I hate pickles. Maybe just me, but there's something about a sour cucumber that does not exactly make my taste buds want to jump out of bed in the morning with excitement. And because of this, when I find myself eating the Lord's Chicken at Chick-fil-A, and they give me a chicken sandwich that has one of those dreadful pickles on it, Sadly, it's not enough for me to just take the pickle off. No, I'm one of those difficult customers who has to go back to the front window and ask for a whole new sandwich because that pickle residue has contaminated and saturated that precious bun. And in many ways, whether or not you agree with me on the pickle debacle, you can certainly understand something of this attitude as an American. In our society, the fact is that we are just constantly catered to with options when it comes to our preferences. If we don't like the way something is, well, hey, don't worry. That something can likely be changed or altered or tweaked to better suit our desires. Looking for a new car? You don't want a manual transmission? Don't worry. We've got the same make and model over here with an automatic transmission for those of you who are under the age of 25. You don't like that dividing wall between the you know, kitchen and the dining room? Hey, don't worry. If you are wanting to buy this house, we can bust it out, turn this into one big open concept living room for you. you know, you're not interested in any of the meals offered on the menu at Cracker Barrel, hey, no sweat. You can just take this a la carte menu here and pick all the food items that you want one by one to make the perfect plate for you. And, you know, we could give example after example after example of this sort of Burger King, have it your way mentality that we see all around us. However, the reality is, while this sort of behavior really is innocence in almost all of the examples I just gave, what we need to acknowledge believer is that it's not so innocent when we begin to approach God with this same mindset. Because, friend, let me remind you and just state the obvious. There are no a la carte menu items when it comes to the Holy Trinity of God. <laughs> Either you and I will submit to and receive all three persons of the Trinity, or we will reject and fail to receive any of the three persons of the Trinity. There is no middle ground. And so let this be a reminder to each of us this morning. If we would have God as our Father, then we must take Christ as our Lord. Jesus said in John 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. Not I and the Father make one, but rather we are one. And because we are one, we cannot and will not be separated. And it's for this reason John says rather logically in verse 23 of our text, No one who denies the Son has the Father. No one. You know, as I was thinking through this passage this past week, it dawned on me that Christianity is a, a wonderfully comfortable religion until Jesus Christ appears on the scene. You know, there's many in our culture today who are fairly open to the idea of a fatherly caretaker who exists in heaven to watch over them and to protect them and to positively answer all of their prayer requests in the affirmative. But what you'll notice as you and I look closer at some of these very same people is that you hardly ever hear the name of Jesus Christ on their lips. They are quick to talk about God, but they are slow to talk about Christ. As believers, however, we know that this ought not to be the case. Because, you see, the very thing that makes Christianity Christianity is not the generic belief in some detached, nameless deity in the sky that is not interested at all in human reality, but rather it is the specific belief in the explicit person of Jesus Christ himself. And what the Bible tells us is that until we have allowed the sandpaper of Christ to rub our sinful hearts raw, then you and I will never come to know the healing ball of a God who has promised to work all things together for the good of those who love him. No one, John says, who denies the Son has the Father, but whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Just a word of application as we bring this point to a close. There is really no greater protection for you and I From the danger of denial than to be regularly committed to confessing the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Perhaps you've heard it said before on Twitter or on Facebook, you know, share the gospel daily, and if necessary, use words. (laughs) And while there is a tad bit of truth in that sentiment, the reality is it's just not biblical whatsoever. Because Romans 10:9 tells us that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, then you will be saved. You see, friends, much of the confusion in the world around us is not the result of too much talk of Christ, but rather too little talk of Christ. And so let me just exhort us all this morning at this one point to confess Christ clearly. Uh, Confess him openly. Confess him boldly. And confess him often. Next time we are tempted to just speak of God in general terms, let me challenge us all to instead speak of Jesus Christ in specific terms. Uh, Next time you're at dinner with an unbelieving friend or relative, rather than saying something like, you know, I'm just I'm grateful you know, to God for watching over my family lately, grateful to the big man in the sky for always just protecting us. Instead, why don't we say something like this? You know, I'm just so thankful for the mercy and the kindness of Jesus Christ to my family in these difficult and trying times. He's been so good to us. You see, when we speak in this way, we make it crystal clear who our allegiance is ultimately to. And the Bible, again, I'll remind you, has told us that there is salvation in no other name than the name of Jesus. And so believer, let's use that name as often as we can. Well, as we bring this message to a close, I want to just touch briefly, and I promise briefly, on the third and final danger that we see before us in this text, and that is what John labels here as the danger of deception. The danger of deception. Verse 26 I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But, has, but as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Look, just as it was in John's day, so too it is in ours. There were, and there still remain today, many false prophets, and many false teachers whose central aim it is to destroy the church and to drag away with them as many as possible into the pit of deception. Jesus Christ himself spoke about these very same false prophets in Matthew 7:15, as those who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And as someone has once said, they are like pieces of candy coated in poison. They look sweet on the outside. But as we fold back the layers, we notice that on the inside, their aim is to destroy you and to destroy me. As Pastor Stephen Lawson once put it, these false teachers are termites in the temple. He says, they often go unnoticed, but they slowly erode the church of God from the inside out. And so, with that in mind, John says here at the end of this section in his letter, beware of them. I write these things to you, he says, about those who are trying to deceive you. And a clear warning for you and I here is to keep our eyes peeled for these people, these false teachers who are out to extinguish the fire of your faith that has already begun to burn vibrantly within you. But the problem, of course, as we know, is detecting these people. It's being able to spot them when they appear. Because, of course, we know is a difficult task because Jesus himself even said, they come to us in sheep's clothing. They look like the real thing, but they are not the real thing. They appear to be faithful and friendly guides, but they are far from faithful and friendly guides. And so the question we need to ask then is, well, how do we spot them? How can we identify them? And how can we guard ourselves from accidentally following in their teaching? Well, in addition to the obvious answer, which is that we should be given over to continual prayer in this matter. I think that we can glean some helpful insights from who is perhaps my favorite preacher of all time, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who on this subject, speaking of these false prophets and false teachers, wrote this. What you and I need to realize about these false prophets is that they are always there. They're always present, just outside that narrow gate. And if you start listening to them, you are entirely undone, because they will persuade you not to enter in at the narrow gate and not to walk in the narrow path. They will point at the broad path, and they will call it the narrow path. And catch this, he says, The primary danger of their teaching is not detected by what they do say, but rather by what they don't say. In John's day, these false teachers were willing to say that there was a God, but what they were unwilling to profess was that that God was Jesus. In our day, many such deceptions are sadly gaining ground as well. Preachers will often talk of a God of love, but completely omit the God of wrath. They will speak of Jesus' humble birth in a manger, and his many acts of selfless love toward his enemies, but these same people will hardly ever make reference to his teaching on repentance or the many sobering words that he spoke about hell. Brothers and sisters, if you and I would endure to the end, we must accept not only the whole Christ, but also the whole Bible. And if we do, John says in verse 25, Well, this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. As we close our time this morning, let me just comfort you with the fitting words of John Newton's famous hymn, Amazing Grace, who wrote this. Through many dangers, toils and snares, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Friend, our flight may be bumpy. The dangers may certainly be plenty but our Savior has promised to be faithful to us. Let me invite you to stand with me as I close our time by going to him in prayer and asking for him to apply these things to our hearts and minds as we seek to obey him.